one. Genesis chapter one. And uh, let me begin reading for us again in verse 3. In verse 3. Here's what we read there. Genesis 1, beginning in verse 3. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse, and separated the waters that were above the expanse, I'm sorry, that were under the expanse, from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its own kind. And God saw that it was what? Good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Well, this morning, we began looking at these six days of creation, and we're bringing out 
truths that we see taught here, important truths, foundational truths. And I want to pick up with that, and I want to pick up with, with truth number five, which is this, that God created the world in an orderly manner. That God created the world in an orderly manner. We read in verse 5, And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And this first day is followed by a second day, and by a third day, and by a fourth day. And this reveals a divine order to God's creation. Moreover, if we look carefully, we see that the six days of creation take place within a pattern within the framework of the phrase formless and void. Remember that in verse 2? Remember God began with an earth that was without form and then it was empty, right? Without form means that there was no distinctions in the elements that made it up and without void meant that it was empty. Well, days 1, 2, and 3 give the earth form. Days 4, 5, and 6 give the, give the earth stuff, right? Things that fill it up. And days 1, 2, and 3 seem to go with days 4, 5, and 6. For example, day 1, God created day and night. Day 4, God creates the sun and the moon and the stars to separate day from night. Day 2, God separated the seas from the skies. Day 5, God creates the fish and the birds. Right? So day 1, He gave the form. Day 4, He filled it. Day 2, He gave the form. Day 5, He filled it. And day three, he gave the form, land, and day six, he fills it. So we see in this an order to God's creation. Now, a lot has been made about how to understand these six days of creation. Are we to understand these as literal 24-hour days, or are we to understand these days as days in God's week, but different from our own? And this is a question that goes back all the way to the early church. The issue continues to be debated today. There does not seem to be uh, any, we do not seem to be any closer to resolving this issue in our century uh, than they were in the beginning centuries. Godly men who affirm the inerrancy of Scripture and take Genesis 1 at face value still come to very different conclusions. St. Augustine is a good example of one who said that he believed that these days were different than our own, that they were God's days, not man's days. Here's one way he said it. He said, what kinds of days these were? It is extremely difficult or perhaps impossible for us to conceive and how much more for us to say. Well, those today who hold to a similar position as Augustine and say that these are are God's days, but not literal 24-hour days, here are some of the points they would make. They would say, "Though though each day is marked by an evening and a morning, these cannot be solar days as we know them, because the sun and the moon and the stars were not created until the fourth day. And so they say these must not be normal days. Another point they would make is that the seventh day, the Sabbath day, is not a 24-hour day because even uh, later passages of Scripture, including Hebrews 4, say that God's Sabbath is a rest that we can enter into, uh, that God's rest day began on the seventh day and continues to today. And so they say if God's seventh day is not a 24-hour day, then why should we say the other six are 24-hour days? A third argument they would make is this. 
it is hard to see how everything that took place on the sixth day could happen in 24 hours. Because on that day, God created all the land animals, then created man, planted a garden, put Adam in the garden, commanded Adam concerning the garden, brought to Adam all the animals, had him observe them and name them, put Adam to sleep, created weave, wo- weave, created Eve, woke Adam, and brought Adam and Eve together in the first marriage. And so they would say, are we really expected to believe that all of these things happened in a normal 24-hour day? And then fourth, and rather conveniently in our day, uh, they would say that this view of these days as God's days fits much better with modern science, which says that our world is actually billions of years old, not a few thousand years old. Well, those who say, no, 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 If we take this at face value, we think it looks more like literal 24-hour days. Here's how they might come back at those arguments. They would say, first, it is true that the sun is not created until the fourth day. But does light ultimately come from the sun or from God? He does not need to bring, God does not need the sun to bring light upon the earth. In fact, in Exodus 10, God puts a plague of darkness on the Egyptians while giving sunlight to the Israelites just across town, right? And so God does not need the sun to give light. He could have caused there to be evening and morning before there was a sun. Second, concerning the seventh day being a long-lasting day that continues to today, we should note that, in fact, God does not say on the seventh day there was evening and there was morning. It's the only day in which we do not read there was evening and there was morning the seventh day. And so God himself seems to make a distinction, a difference between the sixth and the seventh day. Yet, that being true, are we really to believe that after Adam and Eve were created, there was not a literal 24-hour seventh day? Did Adam and Eve live through a seventh day that lasted up till today? No, we would all affirm that Adam and Eve, created on the sixth day, lived through a seventh day, which was 24 hours like our own. And so we would have to say that the seventh day was a 24-hour day. And therefore, if the seventh day is, why wouldn't the other six? Number three, concerning the sixth day... And all the things that took place on that day, the creating of the garden, the creating of man, the bringing the animals to Adam, the causing him to fall asleep, the creating of Eve, the bringing them together. Do we really think that God is incapable of accomplishing all those things in 24 hours? The only activity on that day that seems to need a great deal of time is the naming of the animals. And even there, we do not necessarily need to imagine thousands upon thousands of animals coming to Adam to be named. Rather, it is possible, and this is just speculation, but it is possible that these first animals were merely the parents of the various kinds we know today. So just as Adam and Eve's offspring became uh, different people groups with different skin color and body types and customs, so also the offspring of these original animals took on different variations, though always remaining essentially the same kind of animal. So for example, instead of Adam having to name every type of dog and wolf, that's a poodle. That's a hound dog. That's a golden retriever. That's an arctic wolf. There's a gray wolf. Maybe in the beginning, God created a canine. And Adam named the canine 
and then over time different variations of that took place, but always according to that kind. That's just one possibility, but if that possibility is true, it would explain how Adam could very well have perhaps named all the animals at that time within a day's period. And number four, what about the fact that all the various fields of science tell us that our world is billions of years old? How do we deal with that? Well, first, it could be that the various fields of science are all wrong in their dating methods because of one common mistake, namely the assumption that the universe has always remained constant since creation and operates today as it always has. In other words, they overlook the fact that the universe has changed that the universe today is not as it always was, but that things were different before the fall and that things were different before the flood of Noah. That's one view. A second argument is that scientists today might not be wrong. That scientists today are finding things that, that make sense, that would say, yes, the earth is billions of years old, and that's because God created the universe with the appearance of age. In other words, just as God did not create Adam and Eve as babies in the garden but created them as mature adults, right? Perhaps God created the universe as a mature universe. It's the age-old question, did Adam and Eve have a belly button, right? If Adam and, if, did, did Adam and Eve have a belly button? Well, if they did, it gave the appearance of having been born, though we know they never were born. So also God could have created the universe as having the appearance of age, though not really having that. Um, one, one case in point in this is to think about this. Did Adam and Eve see starlight? Did they see starlight? Because scientists tell us that starlight has to travel thousands of years before we ever see it, not counting our own sun, right? And so if, in order for them to see starlight, there either would have had to have been stars existing thousands of years before them, or God could have created the stars as if they had existed thousands of years in order to show the fullness of his glory there at the beginning. That's a possibility. Um, I have always wavered on this and found, found this a very difficult issue. Um, in, in recent days, I am much more leaning more towards a literal 24-hour view. I just don't see a reason yet to fully give up on, on that position. Um, Merle and I had a conversation a few days ago. You hope you don't mind me bringing this up. and uh, I, It was very helpful to me, and, and maybe it'll be helpful to, to you. Um, uh, he, he asked the question, he said, if we consider um, this, would we not all affirm that God could create the whole world in a moment if he chose to? Wouldn't we affirm that? And so if God could do that, but he's chosen not to, what is the reason behind that? Right? What, what is God's motivation in creating the world over a span of days, whether those are God's days or our days? Well, if we affirm that these are literal 24-hour days, we see exactly why God did it this way. Because his work week was going to establish our work week, right? He had six days of work and a seventh day of rest. And he was establishing that as a pattern for man, a six-day work week and a Sabbath day, right? But if we say that these days represent thousands of years, if we say that they represent something like that, then what's God's reason for doing so? We're given no reason in the text to explain why he would do that. God created the way he did, in the order he did, to set an example for us of how we are to live out his command of having dominion on the earth. 
For six days we are to work, bringing further order and development to his universe. On the seventh, we are to cease from our work and rest. And this is why God created the way he did. So I I would suggest that a literal 24-hour interpretation of Genesis 1 is the correct interpretation. Um, That's my conviction right now, and uh, I think it will stay that way. But I do know that there are many godly men who who see it differently, and and I, I respect them as well. So, um, either way, whether these are God's days or literal 24-hour days, Genesis 1, hear this, remains a historical, factual account of creation. Whether they are His days or our days, God did create the world, and He did create the world in the order that is given here. And this reveals something very important about our God. It reveals that our God is a God of order, not a God of chaos, not a God of confusion. And the implication for us is this. If our God is characterized by order, what should His children be characterized by? Like father, like son, or daughter. We ought also to be characterized by order, not chaos or disorder. An undisciplined life a disorderly home or house, an improperly ordered church are all out of sync with the character of our God. Paul told God's people in 1 Corinthians 14.40, all things should be done decently and in order. In fact, in Colossians 2, Paul has given reasons why he is thankful for the church in Colossae. And among the reasons he gives, he mentions their good order as a reason for his rejoicing. He saw the good order of their church as evidence that they truly belong to God. Now, people can go to unhealthy extremes in the pursuit of order, can't they? Now, we we, we need to recognize that. There is an extreme in becoming overly zealous for order, and we don't want to go that far. But as a principle, God's people should imitate Him by pursuing good order in the various spheres of their lives. How are you doing at that? Do you see a desire for order as a way in which you reflect your God? You should. Let me make another point here about the phrase, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. Because what we see in that phrase is most probably the creation of time. Right? Time has not always existed. It has not. There was, there was a time when there was no time, if that makes any sense. Right? Time is not a part of God. There was a time when only God existed, period. And since time is not an attribute of God, time did not exist. This is is why Jesus could say, right, because God is outside of time, Jesus could say, before Abraham was, I was, I am, right? I am all times. I am. God is not bound by time. Yet we as creatures are bound by time. Any time, um, time. Considering this reminds us that we are not God, right? It is another way in which we are reminded that we are creature. He is creator. Most of us at some point or another have felt our own dependence upon time. 
when we've woken up out of a deep sleep and became disoriented because we weren't sure what time it is or what day it was, right? And we didn't feel right. We felt strange. We felt uneasy. Throughout, throughout history, we've seen evidence of prisoners who've been locked away going to extremes to find a way to mark the days they've been there because with an absence of time, they would go mad. That's how bound to time we as human beings are. It is integral to our lives. And yet it may not always be this way. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes that God has put eternity into man's heart. I do not think the Bible gives us any grounds to say that we will ever be like Christ, transcending time completely. I don't think there will ever be a time when we can say, before Abraham was, I am. I don't think we'll ever be able to say that. I think that, that, that prerogative and that truth belongs to Christ alone. Yet certainly the Bible does promise us eternal life. A life without aging, isn't that going to be good? A life without any of the negative effects of time that we experience in this present life. And so, in some sense, we will always be bound by time, but in another sense, we will be free from it in eternity. It will never affect us in a negative way as it does here on earth. Jonathan Edwards was reflecting on this phrase, and there was evening and there was morning, and he suggested that this is a picture of the Christian life. That though God created light, out of darkness, light and darkness continue to coexist in our world. And so also, God has created light in us, and yet we know that there's still a battle within us, isn't it? Between light and darkness. So just as each day passes and we see light and we see darkness, we see light and we see darkness, so also in our own lives we see a war between light, the Spirit of God, and darkness, the flesh. And yet, what does the Bible tell us? There will one day be a new creation where there is no night. Remember that? There will be a day when it will no longer be light, darkness, light, darkness, light, darkness. There will only be light in that creation, and so it will be in our souls. No longer will there be the battle, light, darkness, light, darkness. There will only be light in our souls because we will be free from the presence of indwelling sin. Amen. Make sure the basketball game wasn't on. Truth six. The Lord alone is God. Now this is, may seem obvious, but it's really the main point of the entire text. So we, we have to talk about it. The Lord alone is God. As we said last week, this is the primary message of Genesis 1. We need to understand that what God is doing on each of these six days is wiping away the various gods of the Egyptians from whom Israel was leaving and the Canaanites to whom Israel was going, right? God gave to Israel these truths about how He created the world when they're coming out of Egypt and going to Canaan. And Israel needed to be set free not only from their slavery to Egypt, but they needed to be set free from the religion of the Egyptians. They needed to be set free from the stain of the paganism of the Egyptians. And so when God is taking credit for, for creating the world in each of these six days, He is insisting that all the different aspects of nature that were worshipped by these pagan gods ought not to be worshipped. There are no gods of light or darkness. There are no gods of the sky or of the sea, but God created all these things. There is one God. 
On day three, when God says, I created earth, I created vegetation, he was saying, therefore, don't bow to the earth as if it's a god. Don't worship the plants as if they're gods. On day four, he creates the sun. Almost every ancient people worshiped the sun as a god. And so what is God doing here? He's saying, the sun is not a god. It is a creation. It is a part of what I have made. The sun god, the moon god, the star gods, all are revealed to be nothing. These heavenly bodies are not divine, but created by the one who is. This is what was going to make God's people so different from everybody around them. Day 5 and 6, ancient Israel learned that the animals are not divine and they're not to be worshipped, for they too are God's creatures. Even human beings, right? The Pharaoh claimed to be a man-god, claimed to be divine. Yet God shows clearly here that though man has an important role to play, man is creation, not creator, not God. Well, let me very briefly walk us through the six days and point out a couple of things with that in mind. Look with me at day one. What we have in day one is the creation of light and its separation from darkness. Why did God create light before creating the sun? I think God did that to make clear that He is the ultimate source of light and that the sun should not be worshipped as a God. 1 John 1.5 God is light. 1 Timothy 6.16, God dwells in unapproachable light. All light does not originate from the sun or any other star. It ultimately originates from God. Revelation 22.5, that says in the new creation, there will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. Whenever we look at our sun, it should be a joyful reminder to us of the heaven that awaits us and the glory of our Lord. On the second day, God creates an expanse, which he calls heaven. And this is really mysterious um, because it, it talks about an expanse and he creates the expanse by separating waters from under the expanse from waters that are above the expanse. And the expanse seems to include everything that we can see above us. So it includes the sky, and then it includes everything we can see at night, outer space. Some suggest, when it says that he separated the waters from above and the waters below, they they say, all right, we get the waters below the expanse. That's the oceans and the rivers and the lakes. But what's this water up there? What is that referring to? Well, some suggest that it's simply referring to the water that's in the clouds, that it simply refers to, to, to water vapor in the skies. Others say that this refers to a canopy of water that was over the earth before the days of Noah. A canopy of water that was released in Noah's flood and therefore is no longer there today for us to see. That, in fact, some would argue that that's why um, in the Old Testament, in the days before Noah's flood, people lived so much longer. Because they suggest that the UV rays from the sun were filtered by the water so that they were not as strong on human life and therefore human life existed longer. However... Uh, My problem with that is this. If we look carefully at what is being said here, the water is said to be above the expanse, and the expanse does not just refer to the sky of earth. The expanse refers to all outer space. And the reason I say that is because in day four, the sun and the moon and the stars are placed in the expanse. And so the, the picture here is of water under the expanse here on earth, and then water above the universe. 
I have no idea what that means. All right, I, I have no idea what that means, but it does seem to be what it's what it's teaching. So, go home and think about that. Day three. On day three, God gathers the water into seas and causes dry land to appear. All right, so we have the, the creation of dry land by the gathering of water together. This was something that the that the God's people sung about. In Psalm 104, let me list, let me, I'm not going to sing it for you, but let me read it for you. Uh, Psalm 104, He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight, and the mountains rose, and the valleys sank down to the place where you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, that they might not again cover the earth. So we have this picture of God's word speaking and the waters leaving, separating into seas and the mountains rising up to create dry land. 70% of our planet's surface is covered with water. The amount of water in our oceans is eight times the volume of our dry land, which means this. If, our, if the surface of our planet was flattened out so that every inch of our planet was at perfect sea level, the oceans would cover the entire earth at a depth of over two miles. So the creation of dry land was a creation of just what we read in Psalm 104, the creation of mountains, of land being lifted up and the waters being gathered together. The dry land uncovered in day three is meant to be a home to animal and human life. And therefore, on day three, God begins preparing the land for his creatures. He creates vegetation for them to live off of. He creates grasses and flowers and bushes and trees. Every plant that you can think of was created on this day, was made to exist at this time. To which you would say, wait a minute. How can we have plants on day three when the sun isn't created till day four? Right? How can we have that? Well, same thing. God does not need the sun to give light. He did not need the sun to give the plants life. In fact, that is one of the chief points of this verse. God gave to these various plants the ability to reproduce and to have lice, life, not lice, to have life within themselves, right? Do you see that on day three? Look with me at verse 12. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seeds. Seeds. So what's, what's, the, what's the importance of seeds? What do seeds do? This is the way that the plants reproduce, right? That's the idea. The idea here is that even before there was a sun, God created these plants and gave them the, the ability to produce life, to reproduce themselves, meaning there is no other God of the harvest that you should bow to. Almost every ancient people had their idols representing some harvest god, and they would go before that idol, and they would perform sexually immoral acts in order to persuade the god that idol represented to bring them a good harvest. What is God saying here? I am Lord of the harvest. I give plants the ability to produce as I say so. And therefore, with this day, He is making clear He and He alone is to be worshipped. 
Notice also that the plants shall reproduce according to their kinds. Just as we earlier saw other examples of God separating one kind of thing from another, God here is saying that plants are going to be separated. There will be one kind of plant and there will be another kind of plant. He'll do the same thing with the animals, right? There will be one kind of animal and a different kind of animal. They're not all the same. They are different and distinct. There are inherent, listen to this, there are inherent differences between the various species of plants and animals. Now let God define species, okay? But there are inherent differences between the species of plants and animals. The Bible knows nothing of one species gradually producing another species over many millennia. It knows nothing of that. Each produces according to its own kind. Now, one implication of this is that we are right to be concerned when we as humans begin tampering with this. When we begin mixing plants of one kind with plants of another or animals of one kind with animals of another and begin tampering with this created order so that we create hybrids of various types, right? In our day, there's a lot of genetic modification of plants, animals, and now even human beings beginning to take place. And while in the short run, the genetic modification of some plants and some animals tampering with what they, God created them to be, while in the short run, that may seem to have its advantages, I would suggest to you in the long run, it will lead to disaster. My opinion. Leviticus 19.19, 19, God said this to his people. He said, you shall keep my statutes. Listen to this. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two different kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made with two different kinds of material. The point here in that verse is that things ought to remain in their proper sphere. And spiritually speaking, it was a call for Israel to be distinct as what they were, God's people, as opposed to intermixing with the other peoples around them, which was the main point. On the fourth day, God creates the sun, the moon, and the stars to mark the seasons and the passing of time. And considering what we know about the stars, it is astounding to see how little space they are given. The entire immense universe of billions upon billions of stars, most large enough to contain many millions of Earths, surrounded by some untold trillions of planets, and all of that huge work of creation is summed up in three words and the stars. Almost like an afterthought. God created the sun, the moon, oh, and oh yeah, that entire thing we call in the stars, right? Now, (laughs) the point of that, I think, is this, that as glorious as the vast universe is, the stars are not the point of the universe. Earth, and humans in particular, really are the focus. It is here and here alone that the image of God dwells, us. It is here and here alone that God has chosen to create for himself a creature that is capable of beholding his glory, receiving his glory, responding in joyful praise and worship. That is the great purpose of creation. Human beings are an essential, integral part of God's creation. The wondrous stars, they're important, but they're not that important. Their role to play is simply to display to us God's glory. 
Now you say, that sure does seem like a whole lot of work. But folks, was it a whole lot of work to God? <laughs> to God, it was simply, oh, and the stars. And it was done. In the mythology of the pagans, as well as in many of the minds of many today, our destiny can be found by consulting the sun and the moon and the stars. Right? They are treated as these divine beings. If I want to learn about myself, if I want to learn about my future, then let me learn to read my astrological chart correctly like the Babylonians did. Or let me open up the paper and see what my daily horoscope is. According to Psalm 19, the sun, moon, and stars are meant to display to us the power of God not to be looked to in and of themselves. These verses teach us not to put our hope in the sun, moon, or stars, but to put our hope in the one to whom they point to. Beholding the sun, the moon, and the stars, and they are a sight to behold, but that is meant to draw our attention and our affection and our awe to God who made them. quote to you Deuteronomy 4.19 Beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the host of heaven you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven created things Moving along rather quickly on day five. Day five, God creates the creatures who fill the sea and the sky. And I think on day five, the thing that immediately gets the attention of some is where it says that God created the great sea creatures. Do you see that in verse 21? It says God created the great sea creatures. And people scratch their heads and say, hmm, I wonder what that's referring to, right? What were these great sea creatures that God created? Of course, we know, I hope we do, what, what is the biggest creature on earth? What is the biggest animal? The blue whale, right? Um, maybe you can help me remember this, John. What would they say? We, we saw it on planet Earth the other day. I think the blue whale was seven times bigger than what they claim is the biggest dinosaur they've ever found. So, I mean, colossal animals, right? Colossal animals. So, is that what it's referring to? Um, perhaps this is a reference to the Leviathan. You remember the Leviathan? It's referenced in Job 41. In fact, the whole chapter of Job 41 is about this strange creature called the Leviathan which literally means the coiled one. Um, Bruce Watkins, an Old Testament scholar, says that there were three large sea creatures that seem to have been worshipped as gods by these ancient um, peoples. Uh, one was the Leviathan. Uh, some say that that might have been just a crocodile or, or something like that. Others say that it was some kind of a, a large sea serpent. Uh, the other one, Another one was called Rahab. In fact, we think that Rahab, the woman, was probably named, remember she was from a pagan background, we think she was named after this, this sea creature. The word Rahab just means the arrogant one. And we really don't know what kind of sea creature it was, but we do know that it was worshipped uh, by folks in Jericho and around them. And then the last sea creature that we know was worshipped in this time was a god called Tannin. Everybody say Tannin. Very good. You know why it's important you know that? Because the word translated great sea creature in your Bible is the word tannin. So it literally refers here to this particular great sea creature, though we're told that it probably refers to more than just this particular one. It's a reference to all. But the word tannin literally means the sea dragon. So what that is, we don't know, but it is very interesting. Here's the point, though. 
The point is that though these creatures seemed big and mighty and frightening to the ancient peoples, they too were created things by God. Just another part of His creation. Um, I would suggest to you that it is no accident that it is here, right, in, in, in day five, that the word create is used again right before the word great sea creatures. It's the, se- it's the only time that the word create has come into play since in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Suddenly again this word is used to remind the ancient peoples these things too are created things. And though they might be great in size, they too answer to God and are a part of His good creation answering to Him. Y'all still with me? Almost done. We're getting there. Good stuff, though. I think it's interesting. It's important to know. Verse 22, we find the first blessing in Scripture. This is important because we're going to see blessings a lot in Genesis. The first blessing. Blessings are important. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob all receive blessings from God. So what is a blessing? What is a blessing? Put simply, God's blessing is His gift of fruitfulness and prosperity. It could include physical fruitness, the blessing of many descendants. It could be material fruitfulness, the blessing of wealth. Or it could be spiritual fruitfulness, the blessing of knowing God and growing in His grace. But here, God's blessing is not given to a man. On day five, God's blessing is given to the creatures of the sea and the air. He gives them the blessing of physical fruitfulness, right? Multiply. The idea here is that ultimately it's not the fish and the birds that make themselves multiply. It is God who continues to give life. If without God's blessing, they would not be able to reproduce. Well, on the sixth day, God creates the animals that dwell on the earth. Earthworms, caterpillars, lizards, field mice, antelope, moose, rhinoceroses, hippos, leopards, bears, giraffes, Komodo dragons. You can name some more, right? Every animal that we know of that creeps on the earth belongs to God and was created on this day. Now, it is possible that when the animals were first created, they were all vegetarians, right? We think that because we know that human death is a result of the fall, and we also think, well, couldn't it also be true then that animal death is a part of the curse on God's creation, so that before the fall, there was no death in humanity or in animal life. Now, one reason we think that is because Isaiah 11 points to a future day when he says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard with the young goat. The bears will eat grass with the cows, and lions shall eat straw like an ox. Now, that seems to be a picture of an animal kingdom at peace within itself. Could it be that it was like that in the beginning as well before the fall? It seems that that's at least a possibility. As with the plants, God made each animal according to its kind, which means that while there may be variation, there may be adaptation within the species, there is a boundary on animal reproduction. They cannot give birth to an animal that is not according to its own kind. A dog will never give birth to a frog. A crocodile will never give birth to a kangaroo. It will give birth according to its own kind. We should also note, finally, that human beings are not included among the land animals. Okay? 
It does not say God created these animals and man together. Rather, there is a clear distinction made between the land animals God created and humanity. According to the Bible, we are not animals. We are creatures, and that we were created by a creator, but we are not animals. Animals. We are a distinct creation. And those who classify human beings as just another part of the animal kingdom are out of step with the way God created the world and are in contradiction to the Word of God. All right, so how should we respond to all of this? Well, I think one answer is very clear. I think when we read Genesis 1 and consider all that God has done, it should cause us to worship. Wouldn't you agree? Should not we stand in awe? Um, one of my favorite hymns, one we've sung here a few times before, is called, I Sing the Mighty Power of God. And each line in that hymn calls on us to meditate of the power of God shown in creation. And then in the very last line, it reminds us that the God of power of Genesis 1 is the same God that is with us today. So let me close by just reading to you the words of that hymn. And you can worship in your heart as I read it to you. I sing the mighty power of God that made the mountains rise, that spread the flowing seas abroad and built the lofty skies. I sing the wisdom that ordained the sun to rule the day. The moon shines full at his command and all the stars obey. I sing the goodness of the Lord who filled the earth with food who formed the creatures through His Word and then pronounced them good. Lord, how Thy wonders are displayed where'er I turn my eye. If I survey the ground I tread or gaze, up on, gaze upon the sky, there's not a plant or flower below but makes Thy glories known. And clouds arise and tempests blow by order from Thy throne. While all that borrows life from Thee is ever in Thy care, and everywhere that we can be, Thou, God, art present there. Isn't that great? Oh, I love that. So, let's pray together. Wait, 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 before we do that, I have to ask, and I'm almost scared to, are there any questions um, about things that were, were said this morning or this evening uh, uh, concerning these passages? And I may just say, pass. But, but if, if you have a question, I, I'd, I'd love to hear it from you. Uh, if any of you have a question. I'm glad to know we covered it so well. That, make, that makes me feel really, real better. So. All right, well, let's pray together. <clears throat>